0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the Mighty One. God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God. Your God, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, very good morning to you. Uh, I love. God's people, and I love the Bible, and so I cannot think of a better way to spend a Sunday morning than to opening the scriptures with you. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Kevin Estep. I'm one of the seven uh, who serve as elders over this church, and four of us are lay elders, and so that means that we don't technically work for the church. We have other jobs out in the world, so I'm a professor at Creighton for my day job. Uh, My wife, Erica, is over here, and uh, our kids are age 12, down to one. Elliot, Mason, Campbell, Nolan, and Oliver. I'm told if you say it fast, it sounds like a law firm, so you can try that out at some point. Um, It's my delight to be here with you this morning and to be part of this church. Um, So hey, listen, as kind of a way to kind of enter into this lightly, I really enjoy movies. And one of the particular genres of movies that I uh, really am drawn to is courtroom dramas. And I wonder if you like that kind of movie as well. Maybe it's the pursuit of justice or kind of the tension of back and forth competing arguments or the suspense in waiting for the ultimate verdict of what's going to happen. I just love these movies. And my favorite of all of them is A Few Good Men. Okay, so it's this great classic uh, with uh, Tom Cruise as the young, ambitious defense attorney. You've got Jack Nicholson, who's the snide, uh, well-accomplished, well-decorated colonel who they think is guilty, but they're afraid to accuse him because there's consequences if they're wrong for doing that. And, of course, it ends with one of the best climaxes of all uh, film in this genre. And, of course, with this great scene with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson going back and forth on the stand. And Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. And, And Jack Nicholson says... You can't handle the truth. We love it. We love to enter into these movies they are great dramas, right? Okay, now imagine for a moment that God was writing the script for one of these great courtroom dramas. If God was putting someone on trial, who would it be? Now, surely it would be the really bad people. It would be murderers, uh, adulterers, thieves, uh, abusers of women and children, Truly, that too God would take to court, right? Well, actually, we don't have to guess about this, because Psalm 50 gives us the answer to that question. It is written like an ancient courtroom drama, where God, the judge, is calling the court to order. Now, look at how the psalm begins. It says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks, and he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. So who's being summoned to this trial? Well, people, from the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, from all the way in the east to all the way in the west. In other words, the whole earth is being summoned to this trial. And he's making a real show of it, isn't he? I mean, fire and storm, it looks as if someone's really going to get it. Let's continue. In verse 4, he says, uh, the, the psalm says, He, God, calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. In his commentary on this text, Derek Kidner captures this twist perfectly. He says... "...everything at first points to a diatribe against the heathen, who are summoned to Zion. But suddenly, the tables are turned. Israel has appealed to God only to find that she is herself the one on trial." So outsiders are summoned to this trial, but as observers, the whole earth is assembled here and called, but it's God's people that are on trial. The fire and the lightning and the thunder on top of Mount Zion are not dramatic expressions of God's anger at the heathens, but they are references. They're hyperlinks that you and I are meant to see as connecting to another time and place where God appeared on a mountain to his people. Do you remember what it was? Okay, God saves his people out of Israel, out of the Exodus. They go into the wilderness and he calls them to Mount Sinai. And he appears to them, you guessed it, in fire and in storm and smoke. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments, he comes back down, um, and he's inviting God into a covenant with him, and he says, if you will follow my law, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing to the nations. And they say, yes, all that you have commanded, we will do. And so in Psalm 50, God's people are on trial for their faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to that covenant that they made at that other mountain. So here in Psalm 50, God's people are on trial. And even the witnesses that are called confirm this interpretation. Did you notice that? In verse 4, who's called? The heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth are called as witnesses. And this is exactly who God said that he would call as witnesses against Israel about whether they were faithful to the covenant. There's a really famous verse in Deuteronomy 30 where God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. So who's summoned to the trial here? Who's on trial? It's God's people. And I want to say a word to you. If you happen to be here and you're just kind of examining the claims of Christianity and you're not really sure that you want to follow Christ yet, and it may be that something that's frustrated you in the past is when you see Christians that seem to be pretty judgmental of non-Christians, but pretty easy on themselves, Um, and you think that judgment ought to begin a bit closer to home, I want you to hear something from Psalm 50. God agrees with you. (laughs) God agrees with you. So in Psalm 50, God's people are on trial, but the obvious question is, well, on trial for what? The end of the Psalm, verse 22, that's a nice, succinct summary of the charge. It says, mark this then, you who forget God. And I wonder, do you ever forget God? Do you ever go a day or maybe even a whole week and you realize, I have thought very little about God this week? Or maybe you go through an entire hour and a half worship service here on a Sunday morning and you realize, my mind has actually never settled on God himself during this whole time. The word that is used there in verse 22 for forget is actually the Hebrew word that means to, uh, to neglect or to be oblivious of. And so the idea here is the crime is taking God for granted. Taking God for granted. So according to Psalm 50, the crime, the thing that puts God's people under his judgment is taking him for granted. It's seeing God's works and responding, meh, I'm not that impressed. If that is the crime for which God is calling his people to account. So I want to show you how, uh, from this psalm how we take God for granted and what the sentence is for that. So our outline, if you like those, which most people do, um, is this. Okay, There's two ways of taking God for granted. Defendant one are those who take God for granted by being outwardly religious. Defendant number two, those who take God for granted through hypocrisy. And then God's sentence to both groups is offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So let's jump in. Okay, the first group that God's calling out of his people are the outwardly religious. Let's pick up again in verse 7. The text says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But I will not accept A bull from your house or goats from your folds. So pause there. Okay, notice that this group is faithfully following the ceremonial law. By that means I mean in the law of Moses, there was there was described an elaborate system of animal sacrifices and grain offerings, which are meant to continually point God's people to him as their great provider and protector. And so apparently this group was doing all that was commanded. Like in more modern day terms, it's the person that's here at the church. Every time the doors are open, they are involved in everything. They look by all outward appearances to be the most faithful, the most holy. But obviously something is amiss here. So God continues in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And so what's wrong with their very faithful sacrifices? Their heart is not right. They're outwardly obeying, but inwardly, their motivation is not what it ought to be. Two things. First, they're coming as if they own what they're offering. When, obviously, God owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills is his. And secondly, this group assumes that God needs something from them. Did you notice his sarcasm in verse 12 and 13? Isn't that great that God's sarcastic to us in the scriptures? He says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? Okay, imagine it this way. Okay, imagine you're at this courtroom, and the witnesses are called. Remember the witnesses? Heaven and earth. Okay, so heaven and earth are taking the witness stand, and the prosecution begins. Sky, at God's command, have you provided water for the defendant's fields and livestocks? Yes. Earth, likewise, at God's command, have your fields produced food for the defendants and their animals? Yes. At any time, did you see the defendant bring forth a stalk of grain from the ground? No. At any time, did you, see the, the, did you witness the defendant breathing breath of life into a bull or to a goat? No. <laughs> Every beast is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know the birds' names. And you think you're fulfilling my need by giving me something of yours? How preposterous. So the core issue being confronted here with this first group is, I want, to, I want to use different terms here, is an inversion of worship. It's an inversion of worship because true worship is ascribing glory and worth to God and responding in humble thanks. That's true worship. But when we approach the practice of worship as the giver, not the receiver, uh, then we're inverting and polluting worship. So the problem is, of course, that it's impossible to worship Genuinely, a God who we think needs something from us. It's impossible to genuinely worship a God who we're not that impressed with. There's something he needs from us. That's not the way that we stimulate worship. Okay, so the first way we take God for granted is through outward religion, without internal heartfelt worship. Now, let's take a look then at the second defendant at this trial. It's the hypocrites. Picking up again in verse 16, God's words here. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Okay, pause there and let's notice two things. Number one, he calls them wicked, right? He's calling this group the wicked, in contrast to the very religious and outwardly moral first group. But second, notice that they are reciting his statutes. They're giving lip service to their covenant with God. The text says, you cast my words behind you. And the meaning, of course, means that they're honoring him with their lips, but they're disobeying him with their actions. Now, how so? Well, let's continue. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. Now, pause there. It's interesting to me to think about the fact that God's first accusation against this group is not their own lawbreaking. Like lying or sexual immorality, but it's approving of those who do. And I wonder if there's kind of just a quick lesson here about the way sin works in uh, in our hearts, in the heart of, of most human beings. Could there be an indication here that like uh, um, we tend to approve of something before we're willing to do it ourselves? Okay, so maybe you uh, before you steal, you approve of those who do. So like I would never be a person who cheats on my taxes, but I can understand how someone might need to do that. Okay, or you would never dream of being unfaithful to your spouse. But you've kind of grown in some sympathy for those who have t- t- thought that that was probably the only, only thing that they could do. The accusation continues in verse 19. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now, any number of sins of speech could be in view here. Lying, slander, gossip. If you step back, though, and you look at these few verses that we've read, four of the Ten Commandments are being broken. Okay, so we have stealing, adultery, bearing false witness, honoring father and mother. Okay, four of the Ten Commandments that this group so glibly recites with their lips, they are routinely breaking with their actions. And what does God respond to this? Verse 21 These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. How is this group taking God for granted? I think it's in that statement right there. You thought that I was one like yourself. Well, what are they like? The text told us a couple of verses before in verse 18, they treat sin lightly. If people are, we're going to dismiss that. We are either silent or dismissive or flippant about sin. But God says, I'm not like that. They're taking for granted God's holiness and are therefore cavalier about their own Obedience. Okay, so stepping back, we have this lawsuit here. We have two groups. The first looks very moral, religious, obedient on the outside. The second looks very immoral, disobedient, rebellious. The root issue this psalm is suggesting to us is that both are taking God for granted. They're forgetting his works. They're unimpressed with his character. They have too small a view of God. So for the first group, he is so small to them that they feel that he needs them rather than the reverse. For the second group, God is so small that to them, his standards seem optional or something that we can ignore. Now, we all have this tendency to take God for granted. We all have this tendency. It's a Romans one moment here, okay? God looks at the whole world and says, I've revealed myself to the world, And they have not acknowledged me or given thanks to me. We all have this tendency to take God for granted in one way or another. And let me suggest to you these two different ways it works out in your life and mine, maybe sometimes at the same time. Okay, when we are forgetful of his grace and goodness and rely more on our own, taking God for granted looks a lot like moralistic religion. The first group. When we forget God's holiness and his demands for justice, taking God for granted looks a lot more like the rebellious hypocrite. So what are we to do about this? Well, the sentence that God offers to both of these groups is really helpful and instructive. And so let's take a moment and look at that and ponder. Uh, Frankly, they, the sentence is, offer sacrifice of thanksgiving, they get off in legal terms with a warning, an instructive, merciful warning. Okay, let's look at his response to both groups. So the, to the first group, he, in, he responds, or he kind of summarizes or sentences them in verse 14 and 15. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. To the second group, the very last verse in the Psalm 23, God says, The one who offers, a thanks, offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. There's a lot of great things uh, in these verses, talking about fulfilling vows, ordering your way rightly. I'd like for simplicity for us to focus on this interesting observation that there's something God tells to both groups, right? What is it? Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That is his prescription for both of those groups. To the self-righteous moralist, the prescription is gratitude. For the wayward sinner, the prescription is gratitude. The same for both. Now let's, let's think that through. How is that the case? Okay, how does gratitude help the outwardly religious? Okay, how is gratitude the medicine needed for those of us uh, who tend to slip into the mindset that when we enter this space of worship, whenever I go to my gospel community, even when I open my Bible or sit down to pray, that I'm coming with something in my hands to offer the Lord. How is gratitude what we need in order to avoid that kind of mindset? Well, think about it. What's the one thing that you could be asked to bring to worship that you could not possibly take credit for? It's gratitude. When you come into my presence, God says, faithful ones, what I want you to bring is thankfulness. It's nearly impossible to come with your hands open and just grateful, a grateful posture, and and to come as as if God needs something from you. It's almost impossible to turn that into a self-congratulatory moment. If I come empty-handed to the party, it's hard to imagine that party is really centered around me, right? Okay, so a grateful posture is a humble posture, and a humble posture is a worshiping posture. Okay, a grateful posture, when we have gratitude as our offering, it's humble. And humility is what stimulates worship, and that's what we want. Okay, well, what about the outwardly Uh, the outwardly sinful, the hypocrites, those who know and even recite God's word, but break it or bend his standards often? How is gratitude the solution to their hypocrisy? Because really, what we think is, don't they just need more law? (laughs) I mean, doesn't that group just need to be reminded this is what God said, you need to go and do it? No. No, they don't. They don't need more of God's law. They know it. In the Bible, whether from the very beginning chapters of the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation, it has always, always been the case that God relates to his people and he draws their obedience and their holiness out of them, not by law, but by grace. What they need is to be reminded of the goodness and grace of the Lord and to respond in a word with gratitude. With gratitude. Okay, so we have arrived at the, the main practical takeaway from Psalm 50, and it's this be more thankful. That sounds a bit ordinary and drab, does it not? Okay, but we're selling the text short. It actually gives us more than that, it gives us something deeper than that, because that's not exactly what God said, right? The text says offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What is added? to the basic command, be thankful. What is added when we say offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Well, think about it. What is a sacrifice? What were those sacrifices? Well, sacrifices were planned rituals to promote worship. Okay, sacrifices are planned rituals to promote worship. So what would it mean to approach thanksgiving like that, like a sacrifice? Well, I think there are at least two practical suggestions I'd like to offer if we're thinking along those lines. Number one, if we're treating Thanksgiving like a sacrifice, then we would treat Thanksgiving as a discipline. Okay, We tend to think of gratitude as an emotion. It's something that we feel, right? And obviously it is. It is that. Okay, But gratitude is not merely a feeling. It is also a discipline. Like the, old, uh, the system from the Old Testament of sacrifices, they were offered at particular times, particular places, for particular reasons, we would do well to think of Thanksgiving in that way. Uh, to illustrate this point, I want, to, I want to bring up a story that some of you probably know or have read. Um, it's the story of Corrie ten Boom. She wrote a great autobiography called The Hiding Place that recommended to Christians of all ages. It's super encouraging to read. She and her family were, uh, lived in Holland. During World War II, they were hiding Jews from the Nazis, and they got caught. And Corey and others of her family were imprisoned, and so she's uh, the, 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 the book goes through these different seasons of struggle and, and trial that they had. Towards the end of the war, Corey and her sister Betsy were imprisoned at the Ravensbrück concentration camp, and they arrive at their barracks, and they take in the place where they're going to be living for the foreseeable future. And the conditions are obviously unbearable. I mean, overcrowding. There's not enough bedding. There's just people everywhere. I'm sure it smells awful. And then the kicker: they realize they're getting bit by fleas as soon as they walk in. Their bodies are just covered in fleas. And Corey says to Betsy, "How are we to live like this?" And Corey says, uh, "Sorry." Betsy says, "Oh, Corey." We've, we already know the answer to that. We read it in our Bible this morning, 1 Thessalonians. Be th- or give thanks in all circumstances. And so they enter their, their concentration cap quarters and begin systematically thanking God for things. Let's thank the Lord that we're here together. And so they spend some time thanking the Lord for that. Um, let's, oh, thank the Lord that we have our Bible with us. It made it through all the checkpoints. They have the Bible with them. Let's thank God for that. Let's thank God for how overcrowded this, this place is because more people will be able to hear the word from our Bible. And then Betsy says to Corey, let's thank God for the fleas. And Corey says, no. We cannot thank God for the fleas. And she resists, but finally relents. We will thank God even for the fleas. They walk through all the things in their condition. We're just going to systematically thank God for these circumstances that we have. Now, our circumstances are far less extreme than that, and so how might this kind of disciplined Thanksgiving apply to us? You can come up with better ideas than mine. Let me just offer a couple of things that I had thought of that could just spur your own imaginations. What if you just made it a habit that you're going to spend a few a few seconds, maybe a minute, before your feet hit the ground in the morning, to just start having things. So the first words on your mind at the beginning of the day are words of gratitude to the Lord. Uh, Perhaps you set a timer on your phone for certain times of the day or maybe even every hour that just reminds you, okay, I'm going to look around. I'm going to see what and who is around me. I'm just going to give a word of thanks for what is here in front of me. Uh, Perhaps a bedtime routine with roommates or with kids where you just spend a little bit of time. Everyone's just offering thanksgiving one after the other for things that have happened that day. Or how about those of you who gather in gospel communities, which is pretty much everyone in this room, uh, how often is it that you, spend a, that you decide, hey, with our prayer time, we're going to spend the first 10 minutes, or all of it, simply giving thanks? No petitions, we're just going to give thanks in our prayer. Maybe when you enter this building on a Sunday, it would be helpful to train your eyes uh, to look up and see, who here am I thankful for? And then go to that person and share your gratitude with them. Again, I'm sure you have much better ideas, but the the point is disciplined Thanksgiving would be an offering of Thanksgiving, a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. Okay, the second thing, if we're treating Thanksgiving as a sacrifice, it ought to launch us into worship just like the sacrifices did, okay? So sacrifices involved obviously a physical, visible medium. They're, They're objects, right? But those were never the point. They were simply pointers to invisible realities, so the purpose was to signal something about God which would prompt the person to worship. Okay, so something like the offering of the first fruits of the harvest. Okay, it was never meant to be given as if God was short on something. It was always meant to be an act of faith, of trust, to draw the offerer close to God, the ultimate provider of all things. It was meant to stimulate worship. Okay, so if we think about this, um, admittedly, probably a bad metaphor here, of a launch pad, okay? Thanksgiving as the launch pad for worship. It's the beginning place from which something is elevated into like unforeseeable heights, right? Okay, so again, you can come up with better examples probably, but walk with me for a minute. Okay, imagine that you were turning your Thanksgiving, ordinary Thanksgiving, into moments of true, heartfelt worship. Something like this. Okay, when you wake up in the morning, and the breath fills your lungs. You thank God for the air but not just for the air. Your mind is transported to the fact that he has breathed the Spirit of God into you and that his Spirit makes every cell in your body alive with life and you have a moment of worship. Or maybe you're having an especially uh, sumptuous meal with family or with friends. You're gathered together, enjoying this good food together, and as you probably always do, you should give thanks for that food. But what if it wasn't just thanks? What if that moment of thanksgiving was a launching point for something far more profound? And you reminded yourselves, you prayed out loud together, perhaps even, the idea that, oh, for the day, when our sense of smell and taste and the the, the kinds of senses that we will be able to experience are exponentially increased with our glorified bodies, and we will share this meal not just with loved ones, but with God himself. And have a moment of praise praise. The Lord who has invited you to a feast. At work, perhaps you pause to thank God for a particular coworker. Maybe it's a one that you enjoy. Maybe it's one you don't enjoy, but someone you want to minister to, and you thank God for them. But you don't stop there. Your ordinary moment of thanksgiving transports you to worship. In this sense, that you thank the Lord and praise Him that you have been called to be a kingdom of priests, ambassadors for Christ, bringing His message, cooperating with God in His work. And on and on and on. Let ordinary Thanksgiving transport you into moments of true and genuine, elevated, um, heartfelt worship. I wonder if you remember the end of the story I began to tell, how Betsy and Corey's gratitude turned into their own moment of worship. Uh, Their uh, conditions obviously were awful, and so they're at this camp for months. They're they're just being worked to death during the day. And they have these hours at night, though— and for inexplicable reasons, they have relative freedom to minister to the women in their barracks for months. More and more are coming, they're sharing the word with them, they're encouraging them, and they just wonder, why is it that we have this freedom? What a special gift from the Lord. And months into their encampment, uh, it comes to their attention that the reason that the guards don't come into their barracks, but they come into every other one's, is because of the fleece. And so they they, they worship the Lord. For his freedom to minister. Grateful Christians become worshiping Christians. Now, if the original hearers of this psalm had a thousand reasons to live a life of joyful gratitude, how much more have we? So just as a closing thought, a couple of reflections here. How is it that we have so much more even than they? to be thankful for. Well, let's just, let's just have a couple points here. Okay, so, so think about Israel, God's people who were hearing this message for the first time. They beheld God in fire, in storm, at Mount Sinai, obscured and at a distance. And his word was displayed or given to them on stone tablets. What a gift that was. God had appeared on earth to his people, right? And given them his law. What a gift. And yet we have so much better We have so much better than that. We have Jesus, the word made flesh, who dwelt among us. Jesus, the grace and love and power and glory and justice of God was not obscured and at a distance, but lived out right in front of people. That's why John says, that which we have seen and heard and touched, we proclaim that to you. We have God manifested in all of his wonder in front of us in Jesus, and we have it written right here. And we have a spirit that testifies to us about who he is. We have more to be thankful for. But it's not just that Jesus came near to us. That's not the only reason we have more to be grateful than those original hearers of this psalm. Uh, Think about it. God says in this text, I do not eat the blood of these bowls or drink their blood. Right? I don't need you to nourish me. And that's an important insight. But it's not just that. Because we know something that they did not yet know. That God himself was planning to flip, the, flip it around. God himself was planning to offer his own flesh and his own blood for our nourishment. So it's not just that God is self-sufficient, although that's plenty enough to worship him for. It's that he is self-sacrificing. <laughs> anticipating Jesus anticipating his own sacrificial death uh, as the one sacrificial perfect lamb for all that all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to, anticipating all that. He said, he got up and he said, I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And when John records that story, he says, people thought this was a hard saying. A lot of people walked away. But his disciples knew, and you and I know, that what he meant by that uh, was the epicenter of our grounds for Thanksgiving. Namely this. That what he was saying is, you eat my blood, you eat my flesh, you drink my blood, meaning I want to be united with you so that my death becomes your death. Your, my life becomes your life. You live with me eternally. That is the center of all of the grounds for our Thanksgiving. They didn't yet know it, but we do. We have so much more grounds to live a life of grateful, uh, joyful uh, love and worship to the Lord. So if taking God for granted is our crime like it was theirs, And if a sacrifice of thanksgiving is our sentence, then we want to be people who joyfully, faithfully embrace that life of thanksgiving. So if you're in Christ this morning, you have escaped death. The Spirit of Christ is within you, and you will live with Him forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, You uh, are the first cause of all things. Nothing that we've ever seen or ever will exist existed without you. And we own nothing. We've made nothing. As you said in this psalm, the cattle on a thousand hills, every bird of the sky, every beast of the field and forest, every resource, every object that we might assemble or possess, every atom in the universe is yours. So would you forgive us, your children, for treating you as if you were like one of us, for forgetting your power and your glory, for forgetting your kindness and your grace. We've taken you for granted, and this is a grievous crime. And so where our worship has grown cold, we want to ask you this morning to heat it up again with joyful, humble, heartfelt gratitude. And where those of us here have been complacent and we've been weakened in our fight against sin may we experience the power of your grace and find renewed desire and power to be holy as you are holy and so we praise you our father that you have always been after the heart of your people not merely our outward obedience may the spirit of christ in us help us to love you wholeheartedly we pray in jesus name amen